0: Well, good morning, church. Before we think about a passage of Scripture from God's Word, I've been tasked with uh, giving you my elder testimony. I, I grew up in a Christian home in central Pennsylvania. I, by God's grace, was born into a Christian family who taught me the gospel, taught me who God is. I was also raised in a church that believed the gospel, believed the scriptures, and taught me the scriptures. And at a very young age, I remember knowing my sin and the gravity of that, and knowing that the only remedy, the only solution was Christ. And I believed the gospel at a young age, I trust. I don't know the exact dates, I don't know the exact time, I don't even remember the exact place, but I know believing in Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. As time went on, I, I began to de- I never got over that. I never stopped thinking about that. I remember I'd always walk outside at night, even as a kid, looking up at the stars and wondering, what's God doing right now? Just questions about God continued. And that those only continued to, to develop and grow, even as I, I spent much time in church and saw uh, various other churches. Why do churches do things this way? Why do churches do things that way? And I just began to always question, why this, why this, why this? And so ultimately, I think it was around middle school or or high school, whenever I thought, is this Jesus stuff, is this faith actually real? Kind of hit with a, a worldview dilemma. And I remember reading the Scriptures, listening to other pastors, asking my pastors a bunch of questions that they didn't even know all the answers to. But by God's grace, I was convinced that the Scriptures are true. It is the Word of God. And the verse that kept sticking out to me was Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And based on that, I thought, well, if this is true, if this word is true, I don't want to do anything else with my life other than share it to people, to preach it to people. And thus begin that journey. I was given some speaking opportunities at my church in my youth group, and I thought I was going to be the next Billy Graham. I wanted to, to preach. I wanted to proclaim. I wanted to see multitudes come and know Jesus, and I trust I still do. But it, it was that time whenever I decided to go to a Bible college in southern West Virginia and pursue theological education, prepare for ministry, that God started to transform my heart and show that what he had in store for me was more than just getting up and, and speaking in front of you all. Although I love sharing scripture, I love figuring out what the Bible means and proclaiming it to you, and, and hopefully we all learn and grow together. But it was during those times of, of Bible college and then even early seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, where I saw this idea in the truth that Jesus is our shepherd. And what does he give his churches? He gives them under shepherds. And so while, while preaching is so, so vital, there's even more to pastoring than, than just standing up here. And I don't want to undermine that because I think it's glorious. I think preaching is central to the church. But I begin to love God's people more as I, as I begin to love God and grow in my understanding of shepherd. I want to shepherd people like Jesus shepherd. And this desire just grew and grew and grew. And the passage that kept coming up to me was John chapter 6. I would read it over and over again. I don't know if you're familiar with that passage, but in that passage, Jesus does many wonderful things, and then he has this little discourse about, if unless you, you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you, you can't follow me. And after that, it says, many of his disciples, many of the people who were following, deserted him. They left him. And Peter, Jesus asked Peter, are, are you going to go with him as well? And Peter's response is some of the most beautiful words. He says, Lord... Where else will I go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And so I believe that God's words through Christ alone have eternal life with all my heart. And so as I I went through theological training and Bible college and seminary, I was part of various healthy churches that taught me what a church is to be, what a church is to be like. And then graduation came, and I thought, you know, I received a lot of training, a lot of knowledge, but I need a place where I can serve, where I can learn. I read Titus, I read Timothy, and they're all training under guys who know what they're doing. And so I started looking for a place who had some guys who knew what they were doing in ministry. And I think I found that. And I found this, this not an advertisement, but Hamilton Baptist Church, which I never heard of before, and Hamilton, Virginia, which I never heard of before. And I thought, I know, right? And I thought, well... Let's, let's give this a try because they seem to be looking to do what, what I'm hoping to do. And so I sent the email, and a couple weeks later, I, we did a Skype conversation. And at first, I was a little thrown off because I thought I was like joining a cult because both these redheaded guys were talking to me. <laughs> but, but I realized that uh, it was much, much more than that. And obviously, as, as many of you know, I came here as a pastoral intern. Uh, Almost a year and a half ago now. And uh, ever, ever, since, ever since that time, uh, just being here at Hamilton, I've learned how much your pastors love the word of God. They love you. I'm talking about Stephen, Josh, and the, and the other elders, your other pastors here. They, they love you. They labor in prayer over you. And that desire just continued to grow in me. I want to be like them. Minus the red hair. <laughs> I want to love God. I want to love his people. And so that's, that's my desire. That's my desire as, as, I, as I trust I've been transformed by God's grace. And I, I believe these words are the eternal words of Christ that lead to eternal life. I want to spend my life shepherding God's people. And I think that's, that begins here. I want to spend my life proclaiming his word and seeing it, it grow in your lives and in my life. And there was a, a Puritan pastor uh, Richard Baxter, who gave this quote about preaching, he said, Preach every week as though you are preaching to dying men. And that's not to be uh, just uh, sad, but in reality, we're all going to face that day whenever we stand before our Creator God. And I want to help guard, pro- guard and protect the gospel. I want to lead people to, so that whenever they close their last, uh, their last blink on earth, take their final breath, I want them to see Jesus. And so I think that's what a pastor, a shepherd, is shepherding you to meet Jesus. And that's what I want to do with my life. And so by God's grace, I hope to continue to do that. And I hope to do that well here. And I hope to take some of you with me to Lovettsville. So by God's grace, until we, until we all see Jesus face to face, I pray and I hope to, to lead, to preach the gospel to see lives changed and transformed by the gospel and see God's kingdom just continue to grow and grow and grow on this earth. Amen. But until then, until that day happens, until, until we meet Jesus face to face, what do we do? We encourage one another and we hear the word of God. So that's what I would like us to do today is, is to listen to the word of God. Listen to the word of God. I'm going to be in Philippians chapter 2 today. Philippians chapter 2. And if you're using one of those black pew Bibles in front of you, you can find that on page 980. Page 980 in Philippians chapter 2. But as you're turning there, what do you think for a moment? If, if you were taking a walk in 17th century England, you would stumble across many homes, many houses with enclosed gardens around them. Typically, these gardens would be rectangular in shape. And they would be enclosed by walls. They would have fences, uh, hedges, or actual just like cement walls. And these walls would provide protection from the winds that could come in and uh, the cool winds and harm the crops, or they could keep unwanted rodents out. But these gardens also provided a place of refuge. In fact, there's one writer who said that in the 1640s, when Britain was involved in the horrors of civil war, he said, These gardens became places of secure retreat from the dangers of political and religious strife. So these gardens were seen as a a place of refuge, but also an idea of protection. And it was also during this time that some of our early Baptist forebears, who were becoming a recognized entity at that time in England, and in, in one of the early Baptist confessions that they were making, one of their doctrinal statements is they were seeking to unite local Uh, like-minded Baptist churches together, they said they described the local church as a watered garden, one of these gardens that's like attached to the house. And one of their early pastors, Benjamin Keach, wrote this. He said, "'God hath out of the people of this world taken his churches, walled them about, that none of the evil beasts can hurt them. All mankind naturally were alike dry and barren as a wilderness, and brought forth no good fruit.'" but God has separated some of this barren ground to make lovely gardens for himself to walk and delight in. Therefore, he says, the church of Christ is a garden enclosed. That's a beautiful image, isn't it? You think of a local church as a garden where the gospel has taken root, it's transforming lives, and God himself walks and delights in it. We've been rescued from that world with no hope and brought together with a place with an eternal hope, a beautiful garden producing various herbs, fruits, vegetables, just like a church standing on the good news of Jesus and watching his word produce life. We have been given life through Christ, brought together as a church and united on a mission together. To to grow our garden, not just numerically, but to see us grow in our faith and love for one another and in Christ, but also to see more gardens planted all over the world. It's a beautiful image, and if you're looking at Philippians chapter two, you'll discover that there's a church described here that fits this description. Ever since Paul planted, established this church, probably around the year fifty A.D., there has been an ongoing partner, partnership between the Philippians. And Paul, as he ventures into new frontiers to take the gospel to places where it's never been. And then after Paul planted this church about 10 years later, he writes back to thank the Philippians for their partnership in the gospel. And we find that the the church is defending and confirming the gospel. You can read chapter one. They're growing in the faith. And we learn this from the letter that they're financially supporting Paul in his mission endeavors. It's a beautiful gospel garden that's taken root. And you know what? I think we ought to praise God because I see this happening here as well. I think what we have is a a beautiful gospel garden that is continuing to grow. We stand on the authority of Holy Scripture. We consistently hear the gospel proclaimed. I'm seeing many of you grow in your love for Christ and one another. We are faithfully supporting missions and in upcoming church plants, which many of you should be involved in. (laughs) Certainly, we have room to grow in all of these areas, right, by God's grace. But praise God for what he's doing here. At the same time, everyone knows that a healthy garden doesn't just stay healthy by itself. It takes work. You must continually guard it from outside hazards, that's why these walls were put in place, as well as weeds and disease from within. There are opponents to the gospel, and the church must stand firm in one spirit, lock arms together, and guard and protect the gospel from those outside opponents. But in chapter 2, we see that Paul warns of another danger, a threat from within. He warns of disunity brought about by selfish ambition. And I, I have no doubt, no doubt in my mind that Satan would love to, to slither in here, make his way through the doors, nurture our selfish ambitions, water them a little bit, and uproot this gospel family, this gospel unity that we have. So how, by God's grace, can we continue to guard what we have? Can we continue to nurture this gospel community that we have so that we not only maintain what's going on here, but we continue to grow? And I'm not, I didn't pick this passage because I see a lot of disunity or or fighting in between you, but I think this serves as a checkup for us, maybe a, a diagnosis and a treatment so maybe even as you're listening to the sermon or reading this passage, pray, God, if, if there's any of this in my life, if there's any seeds of selfish ambition or conceit, would you please eradicate that from my life? But Maybe you're here today and you don't consider yourself a Christian. I pray what this passage would do for you is show you who Jesus is. As we'll see, this is one of the most beautiful passages on Christ in the Bible. So look at me at Philippians chapter 2. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 11, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Father, may what is said today glorify you and equip your saints for the ministry you have for us, and may it draw those who don't know you to see the glory of Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So what is Paul talking about in Philippians chapter 2? Philippians chapter 2. Well, from verses 1 through 11, I'd like to give you one main idea, and it's this, that unity, Paul's concerned about unity, unity is cultivated when selfish ambitions are eradicated. And selfish ambitions are eradicated in Jesus. So unity is cultivated when selfish ambitions are eradicated, and selfish ambitions are eradicated in Jesus. If you cut that in half, you get the main points of our sermon today. So first, let's look at Paul's argument here. It is showing that unity is cultivated when selfish ambitions are eradicated. Notice how he begins in verse 1. He says, if there is any encouragement, if there's any comfort, if there's any love. You see how the Apostle Paul is building his case here? He's helping them connect the dots between what they already have in Christ and thus what they need to do as a result of being in Christ. Paul isn't wondering or asking if these qualities exist. He's using this conditional phrase, this word, if, to make his point. I trust you've heard arguments like this as well today. If you love your family, you will get this type of life insurance. If you care about the safety of your children, you will buy this brand of car seats. If you love America, you will vote this way. Nobody is doubting that you love your family or that you love your children or love America, I think. Rather, since this is true, since it's the, the, this is what it is, this is a reality in your life, this is how you ought to respond. And Paul is saying, there is encouragement in Christ. And for those of us who know Christ, we know this, right? Despite some terrible situations and terrible tragedies that happened, even that was happening in Paul's own life and ministry, we know God is in control. There is encouragement to be found in Christ. Since there is comfort in love, the love of God who sent his son to die for our sins, there's comfort in the love of God. Since there is fellowship, we've been brought together by the Holy Spirit so maybe even here we see, we see a trace of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Son, and the Spirit are both explicitly mentioned, it seems maybe the Father's love is indicated here. What does Paul say? Since all of these things are true in Christ, there's encouragement, there's love, there's unity, there's fellowship, complete my joy. This is his command to us, complete my joy. In other words, what is God's will for your life, church? Since you are a gospel community brought together by Christ, having fellowship with Christ, here's what you ought to do. Look at verse 2. He tells us a few things here. One, he says, have the same mind among yourselves. Be like-minded. Number two, he says, have the same love. You've experienced God's love. Now show that love to one another. In all of this, he kind of compacts in this last phrase of being in full accord, really being united in spirit and mind, the idea of harmony. So imagine an NFL team who never studies the playbook. Imagine a corral showing up to our church and the conductor says, we don't need to practice, just sing whatever pleases you. Imagine a church who simply seeks to make everyone happy. It can't happen. Because you ask your definition of happiness and my definition of happiness and your definition of happiness, we're all going to be saying different things. We won't be on the same mind. But imagine a church whose game plan and values are shaped by Scripture and led by qualified leaders who do so. Paul would later in this passage commend Timothy to the Philippians because he wasn't like the other leaders in the church promoting selfish ambition. And after all, didn't Jesus himself say the day, the night before he was crucified in John 17, Father, may they all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is the basis. This is the type of ground we're supposed to be cultivating as a church so that gospel work may continue to grow and then so therefore the world will see. But keep in mind as as we think about unity being cultivated, what's the basis for this? Keep in mind that as important as unity is in the local church, it's not divorced from being of the same mind. Unity is not divorced from being of the same mind. This is why we have uh, a doctrinal statement as a church. This is why we say confessions at times together as a church. We need to be on the same page. We need to know what we believe from Scripture. But at the same time, as important as the same mind is, notice it's not divorced from love. So it seems as if Paul is arguing, you want to have unity, which is going to guard and protect the gospel, is going to keep this, this community flourishing and expanding to even more missions. You want to protect that. You need to have unity, but unity is rooted in truth and love. And this isn't surface level. The basis of real gospel unity is truth and love. That's why we have a member's covenant that we sign when you join Hamilton Baptist Church, right? We're, we're agreeing together on what we believe and we're promising, in essence, if you could summarize it all, to love and serve one another together for the unity of the spirit. So Paul's saying, complete my joy, be of the same mind, have the same love, be in full accord with one another. So how does this happen? How does this type of unity take place in a church? Well, look at verse three. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. You see what he's saying? Unity is cultivated. This this togetherness happens when selfish ambitions are eradicated. They've got to go. You cannot be this way. This cannot characterize you. Now, he doesn't say that ambition is bad. We need to be careful here, right? Ambition is good. Goals are good. Values are good. You're determined to do something is good. But what do we do with even good things that God gives us? Even things like ambitions. We tend to distort those things and really mess those things up with our sinful hearts. This is why Paul is calling us to work for unity By eradicating these selfish ambitions. Cultivating and maintaining, if we're going back to that garden image, requires more than watering. It requires pulling the weeds that can choke the life out of the garden. In the church, Paul seems to be saying some of those most destructive weeds or disease that can slither in is that of selfish ambition and conceit. Selfish ambition is when you act for your own goals, your own agenda. It's about... Self-interest, how this affects you, benefits you, not that of the churches, and thus not that of Christ. Conceit is an interesting word. It's kind of two words joined together, and it really means empty glory. That's an interesting word, isn't it? Empty glory. It seems you think you're filled with something, but you're actually not. Not. You think you are all that, but you're actually not. Again, ambition is good. Desires are good. Determination is good. But we distort those things. Remember, as a kid, I was a very messy eater. I trust I grew up since then. But I remember my mother telling me, even as a kid, and we'd have beautiful meals or great dinners, that you make even the best meals look disgusting. And that's what we do as human beings with the good gifts that God has given us, even ambition, drive, determination. We take those things that are beautiful and good and wholesome, and we mess them up. So a couple questions. What, what do you seek when you come to church? What are your expectations? Sing some songs. Hopefully you hear a decent sermon. And you go on your way. In what ways possibly do you live for yourself? Maybe, maybe it's the church calendar or events of the church. They're, they're kind of last on your list. If I, if I get time, I'll, I'll join part, I'll fellowship at that time, but it's not that important to me. Or maybe, maybe you don't prioritize your money to, to give to, to the church to see missions grow. You know, I've got all these other things, and there's a lot of things I want to do. The church is doing okay right now. Maybe you, you even, and maybe this is a type of conceit, you, you go to church, you come to church. I love being part of a mission-minded church. I love being part of a church that serves one another, but you yourself don't serve or give. That would be conceit. Maybe, maybe you do serve. Maybe I do serve. Praise God that you do serve. But you wish people thanked you a little bit more. You feel like you deserve a bit more recognition for what you do. I'm not saying I see these things, but I wonder, we know Satan is out there. I wonder if any of these may be slithering up in your heart, in my heart. He's planting those weeds. He's planting those thoughts. So what are we supposed to do? Instead of doing those things, we are to live and act in humility. The, the last half of verse 3, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Paul defines humility, he seems to define it there, as counting others as more significant than yourselves. Notice he doesn't say you're not significant. There is value to you, but you're to count others as more significant. The NIV translates, look to the interests of others before looking at your own interests. So as we think about humility and what Paul's telling us here, I think we give you two cautions here. First, humility is not merely self-pity. Woe is me. It's, what that actually does is call attention to yourself, or I serve so much, I am so tired, or self-pity, self-loathing. As Tim Keller said, true humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. So humility is not self-pity, just degrading who you are as a person. Humility is thinking of yourself less. And then to our outside world, humility is not the same as not knowing. Much times in our culture today, you know, you ask questions about God or you ask questions about church, you ask questions about Jesus. And it seems to be humble to say, I don't know. I don't know. That's not humility humility is knowing. Paul is certain of what he knows. He's, he's writing the letter to the Philippians to make sure they're certain, they're, they're understanding the gospel. No doubt. But humility is not the same as not having an answer. You can be confident in the scriptures and humble at the same time. Look at Christ. Look at the apostle Paul. But I think there's two problems we face with humility. So we're thinking about humility. We need to grow humility. We need to eradicate selfish ambitions and conceit. If we want unity to flourish. I think there's two big problems we face. First, humility is not popular. It wasn't popular in Paul's day. To be humble in the Roman, the Greek world, was a sign of weakness. It was a sign of failure. It was a sign of shame. After all, Aristotle said that honor and reputation are the greatest virtues. And actually, if you, if you study a bit of history, you'll see that the, the wave of Christianity is what brought about this, this movement of humility as being a virtue. It was unknown to the world. It wasn't popular. And while our virtues may have shifted a bit today, this still isn't that popular for us today. You need to take care of yourself. You need to express yourself. You need to be you. You, you can't let anybody tell you what to do. While that may sound appealing, it has wreaked havoc. Don't, tell, don't let anybody tell you what to do. Go after your desires. Marriages are broken. Families are destroyed. Children are neglected. Churches are torn apart. So it's not popular. But it's also hard work to be humble. Our natural inclination is not that of humility, but selfish ambitions. It's like an addiction we have. If, if our interests and our agendas can be achieved even at the expense of others, we usually take that opportunity, as long as most people don't know about it. But unity won't grow where selfish ambitions live. If we want to maintain, cultivate unity, we must eradicate selfish ambitions. But how? This is hard. My nature is to look in the mirror. And here's what C.S. Lewis said. One out of every three of my thoughts is self-admiration. What an admirable fellow I am. I catch myself posturing before the mirror, so to speak, all day long. I pretend I'm carefully thinking out loud what to say to the next people, for his good, of course, and then suddenly realize that I am thinking how frightfully clever I am going to be and how we will admire me. And then, when you force yourselves to stop it, You admire yourself for doing that. It's like fighting the Hydra. There seems to be no end to it. Depth under depth of self-love and self-admiration. So even when we get the good motives to say, I need to stop this, I need to eradicate this, I need to put this to death, it's just like that 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 feisty we that keeps popping up. The roots of selfish ambitions and conceit are so deeply rooted in your heart, in my heart, that you can't possibly tear them out. I did some, some gardening while I was in seminary, just kind of as a side job. And, and there were these, I don't even know what they were called, but they were, they were little like devil weeds. I don't know what else to call them. <laughs> like if you pick them by pulling the root up out of them, they were just little. They looked harmless. But you pull them out, there's actually like, I don't know, like hundreds of little seeds in there that if you pull these weeds out, they're going to plant a hundred more. And that's what, what it's like, I feel like, whenever we try to, kill sin or especially self-love or self-admiration is, I think we can just pull it out and nobody will notice. But what that actually does is just creates more and more and more. And what do we do? How do you tear this out? Do you ever find yourself fighting that? Say, I'm not going to think about myself more than others today, but you still do. Well, Paul gives us very, very good news. And after all, that's the definition of the word gospel, isn't it? So he, he's in his argument here, he's saying unity is going to thrive. These things have to be eradicated. He doesn't just give us a moral lesson, though, or even just an example to look at. He shows us Jesus. He shows us how to get rid of these things, how to get down to the roots so that when you pull it out, none of those other seeds are going to keep going, but they will be gone. So point number two, selfish ambitions are eradicated in Jesus. Look at verse five. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, as as we jump into this section, I want to make a brief comment, kind of of like a footnote to all of this. So one of the most common objections to Christianity is that the divinity of Jesus or the glory of Jesus or the, the truth that Jesus is God was created by later Christians long after the first century. If somebody came up and told you that, how would you respond to that? Christians made up this Jesus guy years after he was alive, centuries after. Well, let me give you three quick reasons that may help you answer that question, maybe for your own heart or for that of of a neighbor or friend or family member. First, you can't get earlier Christian belief than this. So what Paul's about to describe us about who Jesus is, you just can't get earlier Christian belief about this. Paul wrote Philippians, and, and this isn't like a historical dilemma. This is Is what we know. Paul wrote Philippians around the year sixty-two AD. We know Paul planted the church probably sometime around fifty AD, and Paul was converted around thirty-three AD. I don't know if those dates mean anything to you, but you really can't get any earlier Christian than thirty-three AD. So any good historian knows if if you want to know what was this really like, what. What was, if 2,000 years from now, people are just fascinated, what was Stephen Karn like? It's not the best thing to to ask somebody living 2,000 years from now, but let's go ask his wife, let's ask his family, let's ask his church, let's ask his intern who worked for him. What's he really like? (laughs) You want somebody who was there at the same time, and when Christians say, we believe the Bible. We're not just saying it's a supernatural book, although it is, it's inspired by the Spirit, but it's actually the earliest witnesses we have. You can't get earlier Christian belief than this. Second, there are multiple witnesses. So what you read in Philippians 2, what we're about to discover about Jesus, is not the only place we find magnificent, God-exalting verses about Christ. You see this in John chapter 1. You see this in Hebrews 1. It's all over the New Testament, and important point, as, as I say often, all the, 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 the New Testament was written while eyewitnesses of Christ were still alive. We're not getting books or letters that are written centuries after Jesus. So there are multiple witnesses. And third, there doesn't seem to be a sneaky agenda by early Christians. There doesn't seem to be a sneaky agenda by early Christians. As we'll see, Paul talks about Jesus as being Lord. Lord. And it was never good to call anybody Lord except Caesar, especially when a guy named Nero was was in charge of all of this. They could be killed for saying things like this, but yet they kept on saying it. So you have to say, what was their agenda? Were they trying to fabricate a movement? Were they trying to get rich? Were they trying to become famous? When you start thinking of all the possibilities, why they might have a sneaky agenda, there just isn't a good reason. So, can't get an earlier Christian belief than this. There are multiple witnesses, and there doesn't seem to be a sneaky agenda, at least a very good one. Now, you ultimately come to faith, you come to Jesus in faith by trusting him. But I I say these things because we we don't live on a blind faith. Our faith stands on real historical events. And so if if you have further questions about that, I know one of the pastors here or another member, ask them about that and talk to them about that. There's books we can give you. Christians have answers. So please chat if you have questions. Now, back from the footnote. Selfish ambitions are eradicated in Jesus. Look what he says. Have this mind which was yours in Christ. And remember how Paul talked about humility and counting beforehand? Pay attention as he says. If we're sticking with Paul's argument, how do we eradicate selfish ambitions? I see four main ways that this text shows us how to eradicate those things. I want to give you this last section from verses nine, through, uh, sorry, 5 through 11. I want to give you four, four things about eradicating selfish ambitions. Four things. First, selfish ambitions are eradicated when we behold the deity of Jesus. Selfish ambitions are eradicated when we behold the deity of Jesus. Look at verse 6. Talking about Jesus, who was in the very form or nature of God himself. What does it mean to be in the form of God? Keep reading. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Your translation may say he didn't seize this opportunity. He didn't take advantage of it. But So so if Jesus is in the form of God, and Jesus is equal with God, that's what Paul is telling us. Any mathematicians in here, what does that equal? Jesus is God. He's divine. Jesus enjoyed all the privileges and prerogatives of being God. Yet why is Paul telling us this? What's he arguing? He's not just giving us a a theology of Christ, although it's very helpful for that, and I'm grateful it's in the Bible, but he's making an argument. Why is he telling us this in this argument? Essentially, there's nothing outside of the power of Jesus. He has all the privileges, all the prerogatives of being God, yet he doesn't grasp hold of that. He doesn't take advantage of that. He humbles himself. He doesn't use his status and rights in in selfish ways like we would What we see is he will submit to the will of the Father. So the temptation to use our status, our talents, even our gifts for our own recognition fade as we behold Jesus, fully God, yet not taking advantage of his own status and power. Behold the deity of Jesus. Second, selfish ambitions are eradicated when we behold the emptying. Of Jesus. Verse seven, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, people have sometimes thought, based on this phrase, that Jesus, who was divine, fully God, equal with God, when it says he emptied himself, that he somehow stopped being divine, that he stopped being God when he became human. And then when he was exalted, He went back to being divine and glorious in God. Divine, not divine, divine. But that is not true. That is not what this passage is teaching. So, what does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? Again, keep reading. He says, by taking the form, so he was in the form of God, but now he says he's taking the form or the nature of a servant, becoming human. So Jesus already existed long before arriving on earth in a manger. And he was fully God, yet he became man. Do you see the, the great paradox there? He emptied himself by taking on. He emptied by addition. The word became flesh, as John 1 tells us. Not just any human, but a servant. The second person of the Trinity, of God himself, Emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. He didn't become any less God, but he emptied himself by taking on human flesh. So the desire to fill our lives with maybe the most pleasure, maybe little sacrifice, diminishes when we contemplate the one through whom the world was made. Coming to serve, coming not to be served, but to serve. Behold the emptying of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus. Third, behold the death of Jesus. Selfish ambitions are eradicated when we behold the death of Jesus. Look at verse eight. In being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you remember how the gospels describe that night before Jesus went to the cross? Jesus goes to the garden to be with his father, And as he sweats blood, he cries out, Father, is there any other way, not in fear of Roman soldiers, but in the cup of God's wrath that he was about to drink? If there is another way, please, Father, let this cup pass. Silence. Father, if there's another way, let this cup pass. Silence. Father, yet not what I will, but what you will. I'll drink the cup. I'll drink the cup. Who would have ever thought that a cross could turn out to be so beautiful? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Do you understand what happened on the cross of Jesus? What he did on the cross was take all of those selfish ambitions, all of our sins, all of our desires to put ourselves in the place of God, to to dethrone God. He took all of those desires, all those sins, all the sins of his people. He went to the cross And he drank the cup of God's judgment that we all deserve. He drank it. As one pastor said, Jesus got hell for us on the cross. The judgment, the wrath we deserve. Jesus drank it all on the cross for his people. So those times when we compare ourselves to others which then turn into belittling others, are eradicated when we see the Son of God hanging on the cross for our sins. And then as his body, as those being united to Jesus, we too then give our lives, not for ourselves, but for one another. There will always be someone better than you at whatever you do. If we live to compete, we will always be disappointed. Say this to moms, to parents, teenagers, whoever you are you're always we're always going to compare ourselves to others and if we live to compete we're always going to be fueled by selfish ambitions and desires but the good news of the gospel is you don't necessarily have to be like them or that you are to follow Christ the one who died for your sins we live to serve when we see the cross john stott says we shrink to our true size But look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. Finally, selfish ambitions are eradicated when we behold the exaltation of Jesus. When we behold the exaltation of Jesus. Jesus did not remain dead. Yes, he drank the cup of God's wrath, the judgment which you and I deserve. For everything we've ever sinned against God, every one of his people, God through Jesus, Jesus took that on himself. And so if you repent, if you trust in Jesus, your sin has been crucified with Christ. But here's here's the best news of all. Jesus didn't stay dead. He didn't just die a martyr. God exalted him. God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Do you remember Isaiah 45, which which we read earlier? Who was that describing? Who was that talking about? It's talking about God. It's talking about Yahweh, the God of Israel. In fact, those those chapters in Isaiah, the middle of Isaiah, are all talking about how God is great, but he's one. And do you see what's going on here in these verses? God has highly exalted him, who? Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. He's giving the name that belonged to God alone, to Yahweh, to Jesus. Do you see who that is being addressed to, it's being addressed to Jesus as if it already wasn't clear enough that Jesus is God. It's absolutely even more clear now. Jesus is Lord. Not Nero, not Caesar, not the president, not the king, not the dictator. Jesus is king and therefore Jesus is worthy of your life, your allegiance. If you were to look back at Isaiah 45, you would see two things. You would see, it says that every knee would bow, tongue confess, but you also see that at that day, there will be some who do so in anger and in shame. It's only the offspring of Israel will be justified. So is Paul teaching here that every knee will bow, every tongue confess, therefore everybody will will be with Christ and in glory? No. No. Go back and read Isaiah 45, verses 24 and 25. Go read that this afternoon. Think about that, maybe with your family or a friend this week. There will be some who bow in anger and in shame. There will be others who bow with joy and glory. All those who share the faith of Abraham, they will bow. So the question is not, will you bow the knee to Jesus, but when? Question is not, will you confess Jesus as Lord, but how, with joy or with grudge? And if, if, if you're here today and, and you haven't bowed to King Jesus, what are you waiting for? The Son of God, second person of the Trinity, of God himself, came, took on human flesh he died for sinners just like you and me. And the good news of the gospel is, just as Jesus was raised, if we're, we're trusting in him, we're united in him, even though we die, and it's terrible, our great hope is that we will too be raised with Christ. We will be exalted. Selfish ambitions are transformed into humility as we behold Jesus. And humility is the ground in which unity is cultivated. Cultivated. Hamilton Baptist Church, behold Jesus. He is our example, but he's also our source of humility. Have this mind where? It's in Christ, in Christ. If we as a church want to continue to, to be faithful to the gospel, to protect the gospel, to have unity among ourselves, to see ourselves grow in the gospel and other gardens planted around the country, around the world... We must be united as we behold Jesus. Selfish ambitions eradicated, conceit eradicated, follow him. The civil wars belong out there, not in here. May we continue to look into the mirror of holy scripture as we lock arms with one another, confess our failures and trust in God's transforming grace. Until then, we stand on scripture we proclaim the gospel. We support. We're involved in missions. And I'm reminded here as we, as, we, as we close that the church is not merely here to help you have a better week or to prepare you for a better Monday, although I hope we certainly help. But I'm reminded the church is ultimately here to prepare us for eternity. Your pastors work hard hard to labor so that one day we will all stand together in that place of joy as we uh, unashamedly and joyfully confess Jesus as Lord. So may we be involved in gospel work here together, not for ourselves but for the good of others. Unity is cultivated when selfish ambitions are eradicated and praise God those are eradicated in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we know by nature that we are, we are selfish, we look to our own interests, but we praise you that because of what Jesus has done on the cross, we can be redeemed, we can be freed from those. So may we as a church forsake ourselves and follow you, and not just individually, but as we do that together, may we be of the same mind and the same love, may we be a church united together.